Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Well, we're going to be in uh, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. <clears throat> and before we read that, um, just wanted to see uh, how many of you guys uh, had a great Thanksgiving a couple weeks ago? Yeah? What well, made it great? Someone said a sandwich. Awesome. Or unless, I, unless I heard that wrong. I, sometimes I'm hard of hearing. Anyone else? What made it great? Being with family. That's, that's, always, that's always good. Love, okay. I'm going to be honest, and what makes Thanksgiving great for me is food, right? Um, family's great too, okay, but man, just, I love to eat. And um, as I look at the body of Cornerstone, I'm like, man, there's just so many gifted people here. You know, we've got like, you know, skilled engineers. We've got people that run triathlons and marathons. We have skilled hunters. We have police officers, firefighters. I mean, there's so many talented people. And, and sometimes I ask God, I was like, God, what do I bring to the table? You know, I mean, we're, 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 we're one, one body, uh, many parts, right? And uh, then I thought about eating, right? God has given me the gift of eating. Um, where, you know, I can go to someone's house and eat all their food and make them feel good because they're like, oh, that must have been good. Chris ate it all, you know, and uh, that's, why, that's why I really appreciate um, Thanksgiving uh, because I train for that day. Some of you guys train like MMA and different marathons and triathlons. I, I train for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, you know, like some of you guys will work out for your physique. Some of you will work out because you need to burn calories. I work out because it, it increases my metabolism, you know, which allows me to eat more and faster. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. And, uh, I hope you'd be proud of me as well. I tell you that because how many of you are, are, are also free to admit that before Thanksgiving, you went to the gym on Wednesday? Anybody? I did. Anybody else? Can I see? Really? Okay, I did, right? You're thinking that everything you did on Wednesday would help, would help you on Thursday somehow, right? How many of you went on Friday? Did anybody go on Friday the next day? Okay. Some of you burned your calories through Black Friday shopping, right? Um, but the point is, like, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all trying to do something. But for me... Um, uh, I was thinking of a time as I was preparing this message of uh, uh, when I had gone to the gym. And, uh, you know, as a typical guy, we often go to the gym and we think that we can do what we used to do, like maybe in our, in our younger days, or we, just, we always overestimate ourselves. I don't know why. Um, but I remember, um, you know, even doing some interval training in, in the earlier years, you know, where you're like uh, whatever aerobic activity you're doing, you do it for you do it at a, at a moderate pace for a minute, and then you do it with a maximum intensity for a minute, and you do so many cycles. And depending on what you're training for, you do that. So I remember like, oh, man, it's, it hasn't been, it's been a long time since I did that, but nobody was in the gym. So I'm like, great opportunity. So there were six treadmills, right? And, you know, I made sure I looked around the gym. Nobody's there. Okay, so if anything happens, I'm good. Like, no one's going to witness this. All right, so I get onto the treadmill, and, you know, you, you, set your, you set your buttons, you set your incline, and you're like, you know, you go at a pace. Do, 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 do. And I remember just, you know, going at a moderate pace and, and going with maximum intensity. And about the fourth or fifth cycle, my legs started to wobble and, like, really started to feel like jello, you know. And uh, finally, as I was running at maximum capacity, and it sounded like there was an earthquake in the building because when you're on a treadmill and you're, you got it at high speed, it just sounds really, really terrible. But um, I remember doing that, and as I was running, the, my, my legs caught each other. And uh, I literally went flying off the treadmill about six to seven feet, and luckily, my hands were out, so it was almost like I caught myself into a push-up position, and I don't know what it is. God has given us all this reflex, right, that when we, when we fall and we're like, 
we're, we're worried about being embarrassed. We have this all like this instant re, like, reflex where we just pop right back up. And almost it looked like I was doing like a, a final gymnast movement where I was like, you know, and because I was like, I didn't want to be embarrassed. But I tell you that story because it got me thinking at, at, at how, how fast we're running this race of life and how sometimes we can get so consumed with this, with this goal and we just give, we, give it our, we give it our best and we're running and we're running and we're running and um, we miss out on peripheral things. Now, this led me to think here in, in, in the book of Luke, there were people that, that were there for Christmas and they witnessed the miracle of, of the birth of Jesus. And it's a, it's a, you see that, you know, the feeding trail there, right? And they were able to witness it. And we know that the shepherds, you know, people that were really, I mean, the low and dingy of their society were there to witness it. But then there was also a handful of people that missed Christmas, right? We could talk about the chief priests and the scribes. We could talk about Herod. But one thing that caught me in Luke chapter 2, the innkeeper. We don't know anything of the innkeeper in the book of Luke, but we do know that Mary, <clears throat> that there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn, which told me something that, you know, we, we can look at this innkeeper and say, man, this guy was, was a jerk. He, he turned away Joseph and Mary. And, and, and what? As I was reading that, I was like, no, he was just busy. It was a time of the census, and, uh, um, you know, um, like Bethlehem was booming, right? It was just like there was, it was popping. There was people everywhere, and there was, there was no room. But he let that peripheral stuff get in the way of, of being able to house the birth of the Messiah. And then it gave me to think, like, Lord, what about my own life? How many times, because I'm pursuing my own thing or I'm running at a pace that's not healthy, that I miss what's really important, that I miss you in, in, in the things of life. And I love Christmas because every season is a holy season in Christ now. But Christmas is really a time in which, you know, this is a season in which you and I get to examine our hearts, right? We get to really um, ask ourselves, are we really, li- are we really living for what's really important? Are we really pursuing the things that God would have us pursue? And today I want to talk about the, really the posture of our hearts in this concept of fearing God. And... Um, <clears throat> I just decided we'll make it a two-part. The next time I preach in the, in the future, uh, so today I'm going to talk, be talking about the posture of, of fear, and, uh, and sometime in January we're going to be talking about the posture of Sabbath and rest, okay? So with that, we're going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The writer writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age, I think, in which we've lost this concept of of fear. When I talk about fear, I'm talking about really respect and reverence. And um, people, you know, including in my generation, like, right, my generation is called Generation X, right? Any sociologists in here, sociology majors? 
No? Okay. Well, uh, yeah, we're part of generation... After the baby boomers comes Generation X. And you know what comes after Generation X? Generation Y, right? Sociology kept it simple. Love it. So uh, uh, what's called the millennials, right? And um, it would say one of the things that maybe characterize us as Generation Xers and Ys, like there's different strengths, but... I think that for a lot of people my age and younger, uh, we've really lost this concept of what it means to revere or what it even re- uh, means to respect people that are older than you, right? I, I hear countless adults that are saying, man, these kids these days, they don't have respect for, you know, for us old people and, you know, so forth, so forth, right? And uh, I think, you know, there's some validity to their argument sometimes. But um, <clears throat> I remember even having a, <clears throat> a friend who's, whose mom and dad just hated it when people would come to their driveway and go, honk, 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 and they would honk. You know, they, they want them to come in, hey, shake a hand, say hello, greet yourself, tell us who you are and your social security number and so forth, and that's all they were asking. But I think when we look at this and we look at even how we approach certain things, there, there is, this, there is this really this loss of respect and reverence, right? I mean, even when we go to, uh, you know, to, even when I've, when I've taken, I've taken, um, as, as an exercise, I've taken young people to, to cemeteries, right? We've, we've read some passages because, you know, we're talking about life and death. And so many young people, I mean, you know, a cemetery is like no big deal, you know? It's like, oh, this is just, you know, this is just kind of whatever. And then we talk about it, and we talk about life and death, and we talked about the sanctity of life, and there's, there's a, little, a couple of light bulbs going on. But a question I have for you today is, how do you approach life itself? How do you even approach coming here on Sundays in which you believe that, of course, church is not an event, but it's an opportunity in which as believers under the lordship of Jesus, we get to gather together and we get to celebrate his presence and we get to declare his graces. How do you, how do you even approach that? Is this Sunday gathering even something in which is this more of a duty for you where it's like works-driven? Or is even the gathering of the saints, is it more of a, of, of a grace-driven event in which you get to say, man, I get to gather with other brothers and sisters and we get to come and we get to fellowship and we get to worship? Or do you come even with a consumer mindset in which you're like, hey, what does the church have to offer me? The preacher better be good or the music better be good or the, te- the Sunday school teachers better be good. How do you approach those things? But what we see here in the scriptures, we see that um, clearly whenever people encountered God, one of the central attributes that they saw of God was his holiness. And I love that word holy, but I I feel like we've kind of lost its uh, its definition. And one of the best recent definitions I've heard of, of, of holiness of God is this, is that, hey, we all believe God is special. Amen? Like he's super special, right? And one of the best definitions was God is holy, which means he's the only one that always does what is good, right, and perfect. And that's a pretty sweet definition, right? The only being in the universe that does, that always, how often? Always does what is good, right, and perfect. And that was one of the central attributes in which all the people that encountered, the, encountered God through, through the scriptures, it was his holiness. And God is holy, and, and with that, he must be revered. He must be approached with this level of like respect and, and reverence and genuineness, right? What about the wise men? Do you remember what the wise men did when they came? They came, they came from the east, right? We don't even know how long they journeyed. We don't even know how many of them were, but they came on a long journey. They weren't Jews. And what does it say? When they gave them the gifts in, the, in Matthew's account, do you know what it says? They fell down and worshipped him. They fell down, fell down to their face, and they started worshipping a baby. They saw something in that baby, didn't they? What do you see in that baby? 
I've been asking myself that same question. Is this a time of year in which I'm just like, oh, it's the same manger, same stack of hay that we used last year? Or is it, do I come down where I take a posture of my own heart and I fall down on my face and say, this is the Lord. He's holy and he must be revered. He's not, he's not to be approached on your conditions. He's to be approached on his conditions. But so often you and I, we come, to, we come to him and maybe we accuse God of being uptight, prideful, on a high horse, unfair, or unapproachable. And you may not do that with your words. And I may not do that with my words. But what about your actions? What about your attitudes? Well, it's common that uh, kids don't respect their parents or adults or authorities. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. I was reading this article from, uh, it's in the UK, and the, the, the article was called, Parents Too Scared to Say No Are Raising a Spoilt Generation. It says, when Leslie Ward spoke to the Association of Teachers and Lecturers last week, she told an all-too-familiar tale, one of children starting school not knowing how to use a knife and fork or dress themselves and utterly unable to grasp the idea that no means no. Ward, the union's president, who spent 35 years as a primary school teacher, blamed a lack of aspiration caused by the Dickensian poverty, Charles Dickens, that characterized so many children's backgrounds. Eric Sigmund, who's a psychologist and author of an explosive new book called The Spoilt Generation, has a different diagnosis. He says, bad parents. Ouch. He says, I visited countries where poverty means that you don't have water and you die, he says. Dickensian poverty here, speaking of the U.K., is an off-the-shelf way of describing a poverty which isn't actually financial. It's about children who have no shortage of Nike trainers and all the material accruements of, of modern life, but there's a deep impoverishment that we're not willing to discuss, and not just among poor children, because it's to do with spiritual deprivation, parents spending time with their children, and the imparting of values and morality. Segbin specializes in uncomfortable truths, and there are plenty in that book, The Spoilt Generation, for the middle classes who farm their children out to nurseries as well as for the single mothers on sink estates. He reckons that in a misguided attempt to give our children a positive experience of family life, we have opted out of rules and making our children stick to them. The result is an unruly, self-obsessed generation who puts themselves first. Children push past us in the streets because nobody taught them to stand aside for adults. Our schools are war zones because teachers can't control the children and parents can't either. We have created a series of behavioral problems because the medicalizing of civil disorders is a model we find convenient as it deflects any apportionment of blame. And don't get them started on working mothers, the sacred cows nobody's allowed to criticize. The main taboo is that as a man, you mustn't make mothers feel guilty, he says. But we have never had so many children in daycare having their emotions molded by people who are paid to care for them but not to love them. Pretty bold statements, and not saying I agree with every one of them, nor am I saying that this is any kind of final authority. It just, it just piqued an interest in my mind, because it's easy for me to say, yeah, kids don't respect their parents these days or whatnot, but it just made me, it forced me to examine my own heart. How often do I act this way to my Father in heaven by the way I live my life? How often am I, am I, this, am I, am I like that kid, blessed with, you know, Nike trainers and, and the many accruements of life, but but, but, but by the way that maybe I'll spend my time or by the way, just for whatever reason, that really I'm, I'm, I'm living under that philosophy of a Dickensian, uh, a Dickensian pro- pro- poverty. It made me just think, Lord, what is, what is it that you're asking of me? 
What is it that you're asking of my heart, that you are my Father, and we've entered into a relationship with you through grace? So I'm not saying that this is about works at all. You've sent your Son who has come to die for all people, for all sinners, right? He, he, he dined with tax collectors and prostitutes, the people that were at his, you know, his, uh, his, um, his inauguration party, right? When we, when we think about inauguration, we think of all these, these royalty, but, but at the king's inauguration party, you know, was, 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 it was not people from his own culture, right? They were, they, were, they were the men from the east, and then there were people, the shepherds that were like the low and dingy of their society, and he welcomes them. And he's making a point that this salvation is open to all people. That just got me thinking with that. And, and as I think about the beautiful picture of grace, what is my heart posture when I come together and I get to be a part of this gathering of, of believers in which we're united by grace and mercy in Christ? But I believe as we read that article, it just talks about the way we approach God as well. Because believe it or not, whether you're young or old, what characterizes our generation is many of us are very narcissistic. Many of us are very individualized and, and selfish. And we take this mentality and we attempt to approach God with it. We say, hey, God, I want you, but on my terms. We may not blatantly do that, but many of us, and me included, we do this in some indirect manner. So, for example, if I were to ask you one-on-one, don't answer this out loudly, but why do you gather here on Sunday? What would be the driving answer of your heart? Like, is it, we've just always done it this way? Or, you know what, uh, for some people, I'm, you know, I'm actually surprised at how many people I encounter actually go to church because they're driven by a workspace philosophy. I come here because if I don't, I feel guilty, if, you know, or people will call me and make me feel guilty that I didn't come. Or I, I want, to, I, I want to make sure I don't miss out on God's blessing. Or I want to make sure that I go so that nothing bad happens to me this week. Or is it that, you know what, you get to gather with the believers and be strengthened because, you know, as, as imperfect people, we come together and it's a reminder that as we live in life and we see each other and we're all imperfect, it's a reminder that we do have someone that always does what is good, right, and perfect. And we all worship that same God and we're united by that bond. And we get to celebrate. We get to encourage. And we get to be mean and ugly at times because the body of Christ can really be ugly and mean sometimes. But guess what? We're to, we're to season those relationships with grace and we're to point each other back to the cross, all right, back to Jesus. But this is a wonderful privilege. But as some of us can also really take advantage of our gatherings, such was also the case in Israel, because in that time, people came to the temple, but they failed to approach God with reverence as well. Worshiping God for a lot of them also had become just a mere formality. In fact, we know that from Malachi, Israel dishonored God in his temple because God there required that his people bring their best animals to be sacrificed. But they brought his offerings what they could not use themselves. They brought blind, lame, and sick animals. And instead of blessing his worshipers, this is what God says in Malachi 1.14. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. In addition, people were quick to make their vows to God. They were quick to make promises to God, but also quick to take them back when they realized the seriousness of their words. And against this backdrop of God cursing his worshipers, we hear this urgency of this teacher's message here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He gives Israel a series of commands about their conduct in worshiping God in his temple. 
That's why he starts off by saying, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's talking to the Israelites of his day. Be careful when you go to the house of God. Think about what you're going to do. You're not just dropping in on this little chat with a friendly neighbor. You're not just passing time with a friend. He's telling them, you're going to the house of God. You're going to the place where the almighty creator stoops down to meet with you. That's why he says, guard your steps. Think of Moses meeting God at the burning bush, and God said to him, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. So how should we guard our steps? The writer says here, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So in the temple, while sacrifices were being made, if you were to, you know how every room has a kind of ambiance or, or culture? If you were to go into a temple, what the, I think maybe one of the first things you would notice is that it was very quiet. And it was very quiet because silence, uh, you, know, it, it, you know, the belief was that it fostered like the divine presence and receptivity on, on the part of the hearers. So then the priest would read from God's law. And after hearing that, the people would respond in a song. And finally, the priest would place God's blessing on his people. That's why he's saying to draw near, to listen is better than the sacrifice offered by fools. And that's so convicting, isn't it? How often do you and I, in our, in our times with the Lord, or even, even when we gather with a group of believers, do we take the posture of, let's guard our steps and let's make sure that we're listening. Let's make sure that our ears are open first, right? Because so often, I can confess that I've got, like, I've got in my back pocket, I've got a piece of paper that has 15 agenda items with God. My like, God, we've got to talk about these things today. And it's my agenda, it's my time. Whereas, whereas now the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, no, no. You know, it's God's agenda, approach that time with this willingness to, to listen. And then he talks about fools, and he refers to those that are bringing unacceptable sacrifices to God. And he says, I mean, really, the, he's describing that people are fools when they bring to God what they can't use themselves, the blind, lame, and sick animals. Fools also believe that their sacrifices will, would automatically cancel out their need for repentance. There in verse 1, it says, they don't know that they're doing evil that they're even doing this evil in the house of God. So the point is this, all of us, okay, whenever we gather, what is the posture of our heart? I'm not saying you be perfect, but even in your own life, is there an acknowledgement that there is some brokenness, that you're coming together, and we're coming together to, to worship the God that is perfect? I was also thinking of in Leviticus chapter 10, <clears throat> can you imagine if uh, on the first day of your job, two of your children were murdered? before you, and, and the person that murdered your children was God? There's a story of that in the Bible. It's in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, right? And this is really the official day of, uh, of him assuming his priestly office. And Nadab and Abihu, for whatever reason, we don't know exactly what they did, but they offered what they call strange fire. One of the things we can assume, maybe some theologians say, you know what, they were drunk and they were administering the, the, the incense to the Lord. That's speculation. It's a possibility. But all we do know is that everything before that were all the stipulations and, 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 and demands of the law. This is, how you're gonna, this is how you are to go about offering these sacrifices. And when we look at the, the system of law, it's a beautiful thing. It's really a picture of grace because God had covenanted with the people of Israel, right? He says, we're going we're gonna to be in this special relationship. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And then he gave them the law because, remember, he's, he's the only one that, that always does what is good, right, and perfect, right? 
So he said, hey, in order to be in this relationship with me, there's some guidelines we have to live by, okay? Because I'm so cool and I'm awesome and I'm holy, all right? And I want to be in a relationship with you. Here's the law. You've got to follow it, okay? And, so, and, and, and the awesome thing is God in his grace gave sacrifices. Okay? He knew that people were going to fail. And he's like, I know you're going to fail, and that's why you're going to have to go through these sacrifices. But Nadab and Abihu said, whatever, we're going to do it our way. And the fire that was supposed to consume the sacrifice, do you know who it consumed? It consumed Nadab and Abihu. And I tell you that not as a spirit of condemnation, but as a story of a lesson. Because it forces me to examine my own heart and say, how do I really approach you, God? I've been seasoned with just enormous amount of grace. Jesus, you took the wrath of God for me. Jesus, you took my penalty. Jesus, you took it all and you paid it all. I didn't do a single thing. Now how do I go about approaching that? And that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer was so against cheap grace. That when we, just, when we realize how much we have in Jesus and we just live our lives carelessly and, and, and whatever, that's what Bonhoeffer considers cheap grace. We take the grace of God and we trample on it. We look at Jesus in the face when he's murdered on the cross and we spit in his face. That's what Bonhoeffer wasn't against. He wasn't against grace for all. He was just like what we do with our hearts when we take the grace of Jesus and we trample upon it. And it's like Nadab and Abihu. Because many times, what does God say to Israel in Deuteronomy 6, where he tells the generations of what they're to do with their families? The first thing he says is, hear, O Israel. How about Jesus? What does he say? He who has, he didn't say he who has no smell, right? He who has ears, let him hear. Paul writes in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the words of Christ. And James admonishes us in James 1.19, let everyone be quick to what? Listen. Not quick to speak, right? There's some people that win awards for that, right? Um, but no, quick to listen, slow to speak. So we should come and approach the throne room of grace with this posture of, are we listening? Are we willing to listen? So the second point of verse 2 that the teacher makes about worshiping God with reverence deals with prayer. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. And this phrase before God usually means in the temple in God's presence. So he's saying you should not be rash with your mouths. We should not be quick to speak when we pray in God's house. But why does the teacher caution us to be restrained in our speaking before God? Because he answers this way, for God is in heaven and you and I are on earth. That's pretty awesome. What he's saying is, hey guys, there is like a little distance between us and God, all right? He's awesome, and we're not. His ways are above uh, our ways. Like there, I mean, there's just this, there's this, this immense difference between us and God. That's why you should not be rash with your mouth. Because when you come and you approach the throne room of grace with this posture of listening, what you're telling God is like, okay, I know that what's on your agenda is more important than mine. So I'm just going to sit back here. I'm going to listen. Teacher wants us to remember that tremendous distance, that God is on heaven and we're on earth. He's far above us. He's the creator king. I mean, if you were to, for the first time, if you were for the, like this was the first time in your life and you were to meet some royalty, right? Maybe you were able to go to a different country and you were given this invitation to meet the king or queen. Would you come with your agenda? Hey, let me tell you how to run your country. Hey, let me tell you everything you're not doing right, king or queen. No, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would approach that invitation like just humbled and we would be like, man, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the presence of royalty. And here we have the, the most royal 
person in the universe, Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about personality people, okay? I know that we all have different personalities and God has wired us differently. But I'm talking about posture of our hearts. So we should certainly control our tongue when we meet with Almighty God in his house because we're mere earthlings. And we show our reverence for God when we're not quick to speak. So then he says in verse 2, he repeats a command at the end, Therefore, let your words be few. Matt Redman wrote a song on, that, on this Ecclesiastes chapter 5. You are God in heaven, and here am I on earth, so I'll let my words be few. And his point for reverent worship was draw near to listen, and his second point was let your words be few because God is in heaven. Jesus even taught that our words should be few. Matthew 6, 7 through 9, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Jesus is reminding us that God is in heaven, our Father in heaven, and we're here on earth. So out of reverence for Almighty God, our words should be few. And he adds that our words can be few because we're praying to our Father who is in heaven. And this Father who you have in heaven knows what you need even before you ask him. He's got it all figured out. And he's doing a pretty good job at it too. So the teacher supports his second point with let your words be few with a proverb in verse 3. He says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So the proverb assumes that many concerns will lead to dreams. The one follows from the other, so a fool's voice leads to many words. As in his first point where he contrasted the drawing near to listen with the sacrifice offered by fools, so now he contrasts this proverb with let your words be few with that of a fool's voice which speaks with many words. And later in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, he's going to say that a fool is someone that talks on and on and on and on. So what would mark, the question for me that, that, that it spawns my own heart is not are you talkative, but in your, in your times where you have with God, whether one-on-one or in the context of community, what dominates that time? Is it you talking on and on and on, or is it a time of listening to God and taking a posture? Having made these points, we worship God with reverence when we come to his house first, and then second, we listen with, um, and then we respond in few words. And then he moves to his third point, verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Teacher likes to talk about fools, right? Maybe we could call a sermon series on Ecclesiastes, don't be a fool. I don't know, but just thinking about that. But the point is that you and I should be wise when we worship Almighty God. And we're also to be wise whenever we make any kind of vow to the Lord. And the teacher alludes here to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21 through 23, he says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And we all know that a vow is a conditional promise made to God, right? If God will do something for the worshiper, then the worshiper will do such and such. A great biblical example of someone who made a vow is Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And this is what it writes. It says this about Hannah. She vowed a vow 
I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you'll indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And who did God, who, I mean, God blessed Hannah with something, didn't, didn't he? Do you remember who it was? A son, and who was he? Samuel. And did Hannah fulfill her end of the vow? Or was she like, no, he's mine? No. We know clearly that, that, uh, that Hannah had brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Lending him to the Lord as long as he lives, he's given to the Lord. 1 Samuel 1, 24 and 28. Hannah fulfilled her vow as soon as she could. Right after he was weaned, Hannah took Samuel to the temple and fulfilled her vow. So a question I have for all of us as we look at our lives and all the vows we've made to the Lord, how's our track record? I'm not saying you're, you know, you're a portion grace based on how faithful you've been to your vows, but God does take our word seriously. How have you done? And the reason why I ask you that is because we can look at our lives and we can really see how have we treated all the grace that God has given us through his son Jesus and how have we treated it by the way we lived. Because ultimately, during this time, worshipers were tempted not to fulfill their vows. Because what would happen is, um, in here in verse 4, it says, pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Um, Because during this time, priests would, if someone would make a vow to the temple, priests would visit the house, right? And they would um, ask them, oh, they would just give them a friendly reminder. Hey, you remember you, uh, you told us you would do this or you would give this? And uh, it said that oftentimes people would say, oh, that was a mistake, you know. Um, it was a little too much Kool-Aid I had that day, and I was kind of speaking out of turn or for whatever reason. New Testament offers a striking example of God's anger when people don't fulfill their vows. In Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, apparently they vowed that they would give the proceeds from the sale of some property to the church so that that, that, that money could be given to the needy. They, sec- this, they secretly kept part of the proceeds for themselves. And this is what Peter says to Ananias. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And for lying to God, both were punished with death. And then it says, And great fear came upon the whole earth and upon all who heard of these things. So, I mean, words we speak do matter. Vows we do make. Sometimes people in the Old Testament would swear by an object. And, um, uh, for example, people would swear by the temple or people would swear by the altar or they would swear, you know, by the gold on the altar. But Jesus, in contrast, taught that all vows to God must be fulfilled. See, what happened was the Jews were trying to differentiate uh, between their different vows. If If a vow is made, like, on the gold of the altar, it's a little more sacred than if it's just the altar, And Jesus is like saying, no, you make a vow, and that's it. That's why he says in Matthew 5, to 37, again, you've heard it was said to those of old. He had to constantly, not reinterpret, but he had to constantly teach them what the real intention of the law was. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And he's just talking about oath. You make an oath, that's it. 
Either make it or don't. Don't make it and not follow through. Today in the church, we still make vows to God. We marry in the church and we promise before God to live together as death do us part. When we present our children for dedication, right, we, you and I, we, we vow that we're going to raise our children in the ways of the Lord and we're going to disciple them. Even pastors in some denominations, when they get ordination as pastors, they're saying that we're, we're going to be f- uh, faithful to fulfill the calling of what you've called pastors to do, to equip the saints for works of ministry. But we also make private promises to God in the church, right? God, if you will heal me, I will dot, dot, dot. Even in a surprising number of hymns, we make promises to God. For example, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Teach me, O Lord, your way of truth, and from it I will not depart. Or we come in with offerings to his house, and here we pay the solemn vows we uttered in distress. Forth in your name, O Lord, I go to my daily labor to pursue. You only, Lord, resolve to know in all that I speak, think, or do. So the point is, what promises have we made to God the Father? And that's part of reverent worship. So this admonition is so serious that the teacher reinforces it with his final point. He says, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. This was coming to that example that people had vowed with their mouths that they'd give a certain sum to the temple treasury, but in the end they just said it was a mistake. It's like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. So then the teacher asked, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? It's like, you know what? It's now just ending this argument of let us as people stop coming up with lame excuses. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and the words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So the first part of this verse seems to be another proverb that supports, that supports the point that we should not let our mouth lead us into sin. As many dreams are vanities that is empty and futile, so a multitude of words in worship is empty and futile. Even, even our own worship of God can be without substance futile because it's simply filled with a multitude of words, like empty promises, empty claims. So consequently, the teacher concludes with this final command. God is the one you must fear. Fear God. The book of Proverbs highlights this concept of the fear of God all throughout it. In fact, it says that the, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the teacher here is saying the fear of God is the beginning of reverent worship. And fear of God does not mean, again, as I've told you before in previous messages, is not this like cowering or like this, oh, I'm so scared of God. It's really talking about a, hot, a, a posture of, of, of reverence and of respect and of something that you admire so greatly. Once again, that posture of the heart. And out of that, out of that overflow of, of thankfulness and gratitude and just because of what Jesus has done for you, it should flow out of your life like worship. That's why, that's why we sing. Singing is a response to who God is and what he's done. So if you have a hard time singing to God, like, like you know, in terms of, I'm not talking about how you sing, but even just like, you know, like this is boring. What's the point of us singing here? I have to question the posture of your heart. 
I'm not going to question your salvation, but I'm going to say, what's, what are you really setting your affections on in your heart that when you have opportunities to sing to God about his greatness and his worth, that you can't do it? Maybe for some of you, you're scared of how you sound. Well, obviously, the posture of your heart, you have fear of men, not fear of God. I have a terrible voice, but I love singing to the Lord because it's just an overflow of my gratitude to him for what he's done. You took my sin, Jesus. You paid the penalty for, for everything that I should, have, I should have deserved. Every flaw, every mistake, you paid it all. Jesus, I just want to respond to you in song. Thank you for being good. Coming back to the birth of Christ. Do you ever role play with the Bible and ask yourself, if I were living during that time, what disciple would I be? If I were living during that time, what group of people would I, would I have been one of the shepherds? Would I have been one of the wise men? Or would I have been one of the chief priests, Pharisees, and scribes? And the answer for me is all the above. I've been all of those. But I pray that this would be a season in which we could all ask is, what really is here? Paul says to examine your hearts to see if you're in the faith. Paul even says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, there is this introspective aspect of our faith, and we're, we're to look within and ask ourselves, are we treasuring Jesus? And I pray, you don't get, I pray that you don't get more things to do, but I just pray that you would ask yourselves, am I treasuring Jesus Christ above all things in my life? And if not, Repent. Right? Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? More work, I'll give you rest. It's a totally different message, but I just love that. Like, so when I come to Jesus and I'm not feeling rest, something ain't wrong with Jesus, something's wrong here. Because Jesus says in his word, when I come to him, I'm going to have this sense of rest. That I'm going to have this sense that it's all good because Jesus has made us more than conquerors. So whatever I'm going through in life, it's all good. So just summing up this message would be reverence for God will cause us to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. Reverence for God will cause us to draw near to listen rather than to blabber like fools. Reverence for God will cause us not to be rash with our mouth. Reverence for God will cause us not to delay fulfilling any promises we've made to God. And reverence for God will cause us not to come up with lame excuses for not fulfilling our promises. Um, so in closing, I can, we can have the worship team come on up. Uh, the past few years, um, God has been, uh, I don't know, I think we all have seasons of growth, amen, right? Where God is trying to show us a central attribute of his character, right? For some, some of you, that's a season that God has just been trying to show you that he's, he's full of grace, that, you know, you don't need to work for it, right? I had a season of that uh, of my life where God was just showing, hey, I accept you, Chris. Like, Jesus' righteousness, it, it's a robe that's on you, so you don't, you don't have to keep working for this. Like, just believe that that righteousness is good enough for you. And we all have those different seasons. The season for the past few years for me has been God just showing me how big he is, like how immense he is and how larger than life he is, that he's huge, right? And, and what's interesting is like God has been showing that to me because one of the lessons he's trying to teach me is, hey, Chris, by the way you live your life and by the things you do at times, I know that you believe that I'm big, but by those things, the little things you do, you really make me look small in your life. I, was just, I started shaking my head. I'm like, God, what is it then? Because I know you're not calling me to do more, God, and you're calling me really to focus on who you are. So I remember um, <clears throat> a few years ago that I was going through um, uh, uh, just a tough time where it was not well with my soul. And as I look back at the issue, the issue was, was, was very small, 
But as you and I have a tendency to do, we make the issues bigger than they normally are because we're focusing on the issue. We're not focusing on God. And when we focus on the issue, God becomes small. Issue becomes big, right? And um, <clears throat> I just remember struggling. And I know God was just saying, like, not for me to do more. Like, Chris, you need to work harder. You need, no. Chris, focus on who I am. And I just remember sitting in this chapel. And it was just me, and it was dark, okay? There was nobody there. And, um, you know, like, I was, I was in the back row. Because I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm like a tax collector. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even want to be up in the front row. And I just, I, I, and this may sound silly, but God was just like, no, come here. So I just remember going to the front and just feeling very awkward, right? And I just started to think, I wasn't playing Bible relay, but I just started to think through scriptures of people that encountered God. And as they were coming to my mind, I would just go to them. And I went to Revelation. And I remember, I remember when, when, when John had encountered the angel of the Lord, right? One of the central things that John had described is like how big the angel was. And then I flipped over to Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm like, oh, when Isaiah encountered God, right, he was larger than life. I mean, he filled, his presence filled the temple. And I just began to repent. Because as I read encounter after encounter, God was just showing me, Chris, your issue is unbelief. Your issue is you don't believe, even though you know here and theologically that I'm bigger than life and that I created the heavens and the earth. By the way, by the way you're responding to this circumstance and situation in your life, you're making me look really small. And I said, but God, I don't believe you're small. I believe you're bigger than life. And I began to repent. And as I was repenting, I remember the sense of great peace where that problem became so small, insignificant, and God became so big. And literally, as I was sitting there in that first row of the chapel, I felt like, you know, like when you get onto a bus and it's crowded and you have like, you know, like, like you're just trying to stand, you're trying to get comfortable, but you can't because you're so crammed in. That's what I felt like. And not in a bad way. I just felt like God's presence was filling that place where I, I, just, I couldn't help but feel that like, and he, was just, he was just there. And of course, he's always with us, all right? But I know that God is always wanting to speak to us and show us where are, we really, where are we really unbelieving or not believing some truth or aspect of the gospel. So as you look at this topic and you examine your heart, what is it? When you gather and when you come to the word, is there reverent worship that flows out of it? And if not, and if you know what it is, come and repent. The Father has opened the banqueting table for all of us. And it's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. So maybe it's been a time of super busyness for you and you've just been, um, you've just been like, you know, cutting off connection with God. Come before him and repent. You have all things in Christ. You have his righteousness. His blood covers you. Now come before and approach him like a father. If it's just maybe, maybe you're, you're, um, you're, for example, you're driven, maybe your business is driven by a works-based theology. How many of you feel bad that when you talk to people and they're like, hey, how are you doing? How have you been? And if you don't give them the answer of, I'm, uh, I've been busy, you kind of feel bad. Like we live in a culture in which we, you know, we're always trying to say, like, we're busy. And, I'm not, and I'm, we're all busy, right? But some, for some of us, we're defined by that business that we can't, we don't ever want to, like, not be doing anything because we're like, we don't want people to label us. Well, for you then, you're living by a works-based theology, and you need to come before God and focus on his grace and repent because then mercy will be showered upon you. And I just pray that we would all begin working through that as we talk about uh, the fear of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. 
Thank you for who you are. Thank you. Thank you that you are the greatest father who has given us the greatest gift, his son. And it's both the father and son that give us their greatest gift, the Holy Spirit, who is always with us to the end of the age. And Lord, that's a reality. That's a stated fact. It's objective truth. But Lord, I know I forget that at times. I know that sometimes by the way I live, I forget that you're simply even with me. So God, I'm just praying, would you stir our hearts? Would you breathe on these dry bones? And I'm praying, Lord, that you would just stir in our hearts an affection for you. That as we come this season, of course, we already know that you were born and you lived and you died and you're, you've ascended. <clears throat> I pray that as we look at this manger and as we, as we, that, we would, that, we, that our hearts would be stirred with, with emotion, that we too would fall on our faces and worship the king, that we would just not see a mere baby, but we would see the risen Savior. And give us that because this is not something that can be manufactured by man. We're asking your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to remind us of who you are and to remind us of what you've done and then to remind us of who we are. Because being a son and daughter of the king is an awesome thing. So God, thank you for the season in which we get to reflect and help us, Lord, because we, we are all busy. And I pray that we would just be busy about the right things. And we know when we look at the life of Jesus, he was a very busy man. Did a lot in his three years of ministry. But yet he always worked from a place of rest. He always worked from knowing who he was. And that's why he constantly came to you and said, Father, He knew who he was, and he knew why he was sent to earth. And the life of Christ is available to us today. So help us to remember every season is tis the season. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.